to Inside Sponsorship, the show that provides sponsorship professionals with advice, insights and news so they can maximise their commercial programmes and achieve best practice. Sponsorship is about brands partnering with rights holders to access an audience that they would otherwise find difficult to engage or less efficiently engage through other channels. We also know that good brands and marketers place their customers and their clients at the center of their marketing and build responses to them in the form of products and services. And to be able to do that effectively, they need to understand their target audience. However, no longer can that understanding be superficial, i.e., Females in New York who are between 25 and 40 years old. Consumers are complex people and a brand's understanding must go deeper. Interestingly, at no point in history have we had a better ability to have that understanding than we do today. Then there are the rights holders and they have fans and those fans are the people that brands may want to engage with and so rights holders must also have a deep understanding of those people they can help a brand engage with. We all know these things. It's basic stuff and it forms the foundation of what we do every day. But what happens when a rights holder can't provide a potential sponsor with a fully formed, deep and complex view of their fans? What happens when the brand has a deep view of their target audience and is looking for the right fit but won't simply just accept the stock standard demographic-driven fan profile so often presented by rights holders? Well, the obvious answer is that the rights holder is a good chance of missing out on that sponsor. In today's sponsorship environment, that's a risk less and less rights holders are willing to take. And that's because rights holders, brands and agencies, they all face increasing competition for fan engagement as they battle through that fragmentation of audiences and proliferation of brands that are available to those audiences. That's where Nielsen's Fan Links is an amazingly powerful data source which fuses consumers' detailed lifestyle, attitudinal and purchasing behaviour with their sporting interests and passions. And joining us on the show to discuss best practice fan data and use and a little peek inside fan links is Nielsen Sports Director, Commercial and Consulting, Steve Waitley. Hi, I'm Daniel Oyston, host of Inside Sponsorship, and you're listening to episode 98, brought to you by Core Software. It is super cool to have you join me for another great episode, and I hope whatever your connection or role in the sponsorship world is, that you are crushing it at the moment, and I trust all is well in your part of the world. And a shout-out time, and I just wanted to take a second to give a very special shout-out and huge thanks to Anthony Island-Jones, Head of Commercial Partnerships at the Parramatta Eels National Rugby League Club in Sydney, Australia. My family and I are big Parramatta Eels fans, and a few weeks back we travelled to Sydney for the game, and I reached out to Anthony to say hi to see if we could catch up during the game, and he very, very kindly looked after us with some tickets. Now, Anthony, it was very much appreciated. We all had an amazing time in the hospitality lounge and the kids were absolutely buzzing about meeting some current and former players. To be fair, it's probably the best corporate hospitality experience I have had and I've been to a fair few. Plus, the Eels had a great win, so it was an amazing day. So, Anthony, congrats to you and the team on what is a great hospitality experience and thanks again. is very much appreciated. Then connecting on LinkedIn was Emma Louise Clark, a commercial sports agent and commercial consultant who lives in Liverpool, England. Thanks, Emma, for getting in contact. I hope all is well in Liverpool. Other than that, you all know I love a good shout-out, so please connect with me on LinkedIn and say hi, and I will give you a shout-out on the next episode. But for now, it's time to welcome Jordan Rutner, Research Marketing Manager at Core Software, who joins us to talk about his latest blog at coresoftware.com titled Deal Scoring, Comparing Investments Across Markets. Here's Jordan. 
Jordan, welcome back to the show. I feel a bit under pressure because this is your third time on the show. I mean, do, do you get a lot of people talking to you about how many appearances you've made in this podcast? Oh, the, just the outreach all over the world too from countries that I haven't even heard of before. They're like, oh, this is your second time, third time coming on the podcast? Okay. <laughs> I kind of get the feeling that you might be adding it to your LinkedIn profile as a career achievement soon. Any truth to that? I'm actually reaching out to LinkedIn to see if there's a badge for number of times you can appear on someone else's podcast. <laughs> well, all jokes aside, you write some great content for Core. It's great having you on the show and contributing. So it is a pleasure to have you back for number three, deal scoring this time. It's a hot topic. It feels like it's it's always important as everyone tries to maximize return on investment in their sponsorship deals. But brands essentially, they enter into multiple sponsorship deals because they want to increase brand awareness, probably among some other objectives as well, across different audiences at different events. But the return on these marketing investments can be difficult to put a number on, can't they? Making the investments, sometimes it can be tricky to justify them internally to other stakeholders. What's your view on how brands can ultimately determine which sponsorships will be most effective for them so that they can justify and, and maximize and ensure return on investment? That's a great point. They are tricky. And a big way that brands are really trying to figure out what the most effective route is, is backing up a few steps actually, and really starting to ask themselves a few questions. What are we trying to achieve? What are our overall business objectives on it? And sometimes the business objective could really be that a brand is a fan of a sport. And we see that very often too. And that's perfectly okay. You're sometimes going to want to treat your employees where we're actually seeing that grow a lot. And then there are also some objectives out there where they just want to achieve some type of brand awareness and get their name out there through one of the most visible and interactive billboards that you can imagine being a stadium or be or leveraging the team side of it. There really are just a lot of different sizes and types of partnerships. So really just depending on those objectives will lead to more questions about what type of partnership you want to engage in. Jordan, that sounds in theory pretty straightforward enough, but you have an example of how one brand leverages core planning and insights consulting to measure their array, their portfolio of investments. Talk us through that one so that we can conceptualize it a little bit better. Yeah, this brand actually has a wide range of their partnership portfolio where they're covering major league sports as well as other types of festivals, concerts, and really just every different type of live gathering of people. And it's because they have a different objective for each one of those types of partnerships. We worked with them very extensively, just going through a list of questions about what they're trying to achieve. And the first one really is just trying to figure out what you already have. Who do you have partnerships and what type of data do we have that can supplement these partnerships? Are we looking for social media engagements? Are we looking for some type of website traffic like that? In addition, what are the different value drivers that really help us consider what the point of these deals are? And where are we trying to gain different types of awareness? And then most importantly, one of the things that we always ask at the end are really how much do we depend on each of these where and what i mean by that is we want to weigh these different types of partnerships let's say you know you're a brand and you're sponsoring an nhl team and you're going to get in front of 10 to 20,000 fans every single game but are you really getting the right type of interaction just because your logo is in front of them what if you maybe 
scale down a little bit and you have something a little more local and focused. And that's where the weighing of these different partnerships comes into play. Which one do you think is going to drive the right type of value? So in that weighting, Jordan, do you find generally when you work through people on this that they're a little bit too weighted towards sponsorship or it's about right or maybe it's not enough or maybe they rely on maybe just one really big sponsorship with a couple of little other ones supporting it and if that big one fell over or didn't start delivering what they wanted to, then it proves a real or or positions a, a big problem in their marketing in terms of being able to contribute to it? Not necessarily because these weightings can change year over year. One of the pieces that we shared in, in a recent presentation that we worked with front office sports on was we're seeing the average length of a sponsorship deal actually increasing over time. So these objectives can change year over year alongside the partnership. So if you're very much so weighted on brand awareness in year one, okay, after year one, we achieved our objective. So come year two, now that so many people recognize our logo and our messaging, Are we able to convert them into customers? Are we able to retain our customers at a higher rate because of that? So the different weights could change on what these goals are going to be every year. It's an interesting point because if we think about a sales funnel, quite often it's about awareness and brand recall, which our sponsorship might start off trying to achieve that. But from a pure sales funnel, as we move down, we get smaller and our objectives change. We're trying to convert people into a database. We're trying to nurture them through a sales cycle. So it makes sense that a sponsorship should be flexible enough, particularly if they're longer these days, flexible enough to be able to change in theory almost as we move through a sales funnel over many years, doesn't it? Absolutely. And especially when you get to the point as you're just really advancing along in this type of strategy, you're able to you know judge these different types of objective achievements every single year. You can make a decision faster when you're starting to collect and organize all your data because everything's right there in front of you and you already established it beforehand. Okay, so some pretty simple questions there that you walked through that in isolation, they're pretty basic without sounding dismissive of them. But when you pull them together, they actually become really powerful and create an amazing picture of a portfolio that we can actually start making some decisions around. So what is the next step? Once we have all that data from those questions, what can we actually do with it? One of the most effective ways that we've seen brands and rights holders, especially really leverage this is just by visualizing all of this data now. So one of the go-to methods that we're working with a lot, we start out with are going to be tracking the performance towards the goal and also measuring that against how much the sponsorship was worth. So we'll be able to plot this and see in a very easy, clear way that you know we might have achieved 70% of our goal and it only costs a little bit maybe compared to a different partnership that costs a lot and we only achieved 40 or 50% of our goal. So that's when you can start comparing these side by side at a much more even respectable level there. Great example and insights, Jordan. Plenty there for people to get started on with deal scoring. And listeners, you can read Jordan's blog in full and in the slow time, including an example of how that data might be plotted in a graph from that example at coresoftware.com. Just head to the resources section and then to the blog. And of course, Core would love to help you map out your objectives with a custom tailored experience. So if you do head to the blog, there are some links at the bottom there to learn more about Core's KPI services, including a free content consult option. Now, Jordan, this was appearance number three on this podcast. And as I said at the start, this topic is a hot one at the moment. 
Is there any content that you have in the pipeline to try and get on the show as quickly as possible? I mean, when you're saying this is a hot topic, we have a, a blog about it on the resource section of our website, just like you said. And also in the resource section of that website, we did a full webinar about this very topic and our full methodology as well. So those definitely go hand in hand to really help paint a picture about just what we want to help brands, rights holders, and agencies get across when they're measuring their deals like this. Jordan, great topic. Always a pleasure having you on the show. Can't wait to have you on again soon. Oh, looking forward to number four. Thanks, Daniel. Data has never been more important and our ability to gather and analyze it has never been better. But what happens when a rights holder can't provide a potential sponsor with a fully formed, deep and complex view of their fans? What happens when the brand has a deep view of their target audience and is looking for the right fit, but won't simply just accept the stock standard demographic driven fan profile so often presented by rights holders? Well, the obvious answer is that the rights holder is a very, very good chance of missing out on that sponsor, particularly if other rights holders are coming to the party with better data. In today's sponsorship environment, it's probably a risk less and less rights holders are really willing to take, and that's because rights holders, brands, and agencies, they all face increasing competition for fan engagement as they battle through the fragmentation of audiences and the proliferation of all the brands available to those audiences who are all competing for their attention and their engagement. And that's where Nielsen's FanLinks is an amazingly powerful data source which fuses consumers' detailed lifestyle, attitudinal, and purchasing behavior with their sporting interests and passions. And joining us on the show to discuss best practice fan data and use and a little peek inside fan links is Nielsen Sports Director, Commercial and Consulting, Steve Waitley. Here's Steve. Steve, welcome to the show. We always start off with an icebreaker question or two just to get the show going, ease into it, have a little bit of fun and for the listeners to get to know you a little bit before we jump into the serious stuff. Now, my research tells me that you play football, soccer as a right winger. Go ahead. Tell us about the greatest ever goal you've scored. Talk yourself up a little bit and be sure to embellish for us. Thanks, Dan. It's uh, great to be on the show. I'm a little bit concerned about what you might have found in your digging around, <laughs> but I can tell you pretty quickly. I could actually tell you pretty quickly about all the goals I've scored. I'm not a not exactly a prolific scorer, but I'll I'll, I'll pick one out for you. I think it's probably a goal that I scored. Probably I think the only goal I ever scored from outside the box, where it was a uh, it was a dying moment in the game. Neither the goal to clinch victory. And the, the ball got whipped in from the corner. I was uh, I was positioning myself just outside the box, and the defender cleared the ball straight back down the middle of the field, bounced nicely, sort of once right in front of me, and then sat up beautifully on my uh, non-preferred left. And I just managed to uh, to fluke um, a really sweet time strike into the top right corner. And as I said at the start, having not scored many goals and not many uh, not many winning goals, that was particularly satisfying. And wheeled away, what did the celebration look like? Yeah, it's one of those ones where you always sort of plan what a good celebration might look <laughs> like, and then and then when it comes to it, you're just so surprised and excited that uh, it's not really much of a uh, celebration. I think I just pretty much ran backwards and got mobbed by everyone, so that was good fun. Well, speaking of surprised and excited, it's a great segue into my next question because staying on the football theme, I also doing some stalking on social media and online, doing my research before the show, I saw that you went to the World Cup in Brazil in 2014. Now, Tim Cahill scored a goal against the Netherlands, which 
is arguably one of the top 10 best goals at a World Cup, but also to elevate himself into elite company by becoming someone who has scored at three World Cups. Pack Stadium, Tim Cahill scores that goal. I remember what happened in the lounge room. I was watching it in. Explain the scenes in the stadium when that goal went in. Pretty awesome. I'll, I'll probably just take you back a step as well. Like We went over there. I don't know if you can recall, but at the time, the Socceroos were, were not exactly flying. We were keen just to get over there and enjoy the party, basically. And I remember saying to the guys at the start, even if we just see one goal, like we weren't even thinking about wins. We were just thinking about we just want to see the ball hit the back of the net. So to actually get a strike like that from Cahill was absolutely wild. Like the stadium was just going off. I think I actually got a cut on the back of my leg from where I jumped up and I cut my calf on the back of the seat. So, <laughs> <laughs> Did it scar? I was hoping the scar would actually stay for longer, but it did go away. (laughs) (laughs) Outstanding. Well, look, let's jump into the serious stuff. Let's do a little bit of scene setting because as we heard in the intro and the segue before you jumped on, we are here to talk about fan data in sponsorship. It's a hot topic. What's the biggest myth that you see shared or advice given over and over again around fan data? Probably hard to nail it down to one, to be honest. There probably are a few decent myths going around the industry. So I think the first one I call out would be that all sports fans are the same. I think it's it's obviously quite a lazy way of looking at it. And I think some people are genuinely shocked when we do show them some of the indexes that exist within you know the fan links database that we'll talk more about as we get into the conversation i'm sure but just being able to see like when i when i say indexes as an example so yeah something like you know soccer fans 17 percent more likely than afl fans to consider themselves beer drinkers like that's the kind of indexing that you can identify within something like a fan links data set and i think it really does shock some people to see both big variances, but also variances sometimes in directions that you're not going to expect. So that's probably the big one. And I think probably the one that's worth calling out as an additional myth is really the myth that you get all the data you need from the right toilet directly. And I think that's a really dangerous myth as well, because there's two, two big issues with that. Like the first one being, it actually allows the rights holder to control the story. So they can, they can show the sponsor or the brand, the data that helps paint them in the best picture. But also there's often a lack of transparency around how that data has been collected. So, you know, what sample size is behind that data and what specific audience is being talked to to get that result. And definitely the bias in developing the questions or looking for the data to try and build a narrative that they may think is already there, right? Completely agree. Now, Steve, traditionally organisations will gather what we might call superficial data about their audiences. So often this is just kind of generic demographic focused data like this is how old they are this is where they live they earn this much basic interests etc why is this really not good enough anymore in the sponsorship space and firstly i agree it really is not good enough anymore and the main reason for that is again probably as an example like not all women aged 25 to 34 living in new south wales have got the same intention to switch banks or take out a loan or feel safe banking with smaller banks. You know, they don't all bank with the same institution. They don't all have the same banks in their consideration set. You know, it's those types of behavioural and attitudinal data points that allow you to truly understand the, the fit of different audiences. 
What's your general sense then of how the market sees fan data at the moment, particularly in terms of how it's maybe changed over the past 10 years or so as our clearly our sophistication in being able to gather and interpret the data that we gather has improved? Because there is always lots of commentary about how important data is, but I am never sure personally how much of this is is really just lip service for want of a better phrase as opposed to real deep understanding and, and good use of the data. Over that 10-year horizon that you mentioned, I don't think there's ever been a bigger discrepancy in the sophistication of both rights holders and brands when it comes to sponsorship data. And that's, I think that's because there's now some really advanced ways of understanding fans, like the FanLinks data set. But not everyone is interested or willing to invest the money to actually reap the benefits from that deeper understanding. And so what we're seeing now is some partnerships are still all the way back at being a chair's choice, while other partnerships are relying on significant fan data, both in that selection phase of the partnerships, as well as the ongoing measurement of the partnership. And rights holders are getting more savvy. So obviously not all rights holders, but we do have, you know, Nielsen have got lots of clubs across, you know, AFL, NRL, NBL, Super Netball, BBL, et cetera, using this FanLinks data to give them a real edge in market when they're trying to both retain their current partners and also secure new partners. There's, I think, a really good example that demonstrates how that actually looks in reality. So we know a situation where there was a particular sponsor who is now with one of the AFL clubs and they decided they wanted to be with an AFL club based in Victoria. So that's one of 10 AFL clubs. So what they did was they basically communicated to all those clubs, hey, we want to be partnered with one of you, but you need to tell us why it's you and not one of the other 10 clubs in Victoria. And what actually happened was one of the smallest clubs in Victoria won that deal because they were one of the early adopters of this FanLinks data set and were able to tell a really compelling story specifically about that consumer category and also down to that specific brand as to why their audience was the best fit for that particular partnership. So it was really powerful for them in securing that that new partnership that you can you can see running around on the field now. I think something else as well, so that's kind of the rights holders perspective and we also understand probably the brand perspective there as well. So we did some research with the industry recently in our sponsorship outlook report. And what brands are clearly telling us is that they're demanding better data now from rights holders. So we did some research and it's really clear that they want more tailored proposals with more relevant information on why the property is a good fit for them specifically. So some brands are now actually getting quite smart and also using this data to proactively assess the entire market to find the best fit audience, not just reactively assessing opportunities that come across their desk, which is a really interesting evolution in in how brands are looking to partner. Steve, just going back to that AFL deal that you mentioned before, clearly there's huge power in being able to use data to tell a well-aligned story, but what's your feeling in how much the brand was impressed that the rights holder just took the effort and just kind of got them and understood what they were trying to achieve rather than just presenting data that told a story? That's what a lot of this comes down to, to be honest, Dan, is that brands have in the past been dealing with rights holders who who sometimes are using these sort of cookie cutter proposals where they're just, you know, changing out logos. And so obviously not all rights holders, we can't lump them all in the same bucket, but that has been a lot of what's happened. And I think 
two things. So brands now, yeah, they want to understand that the rights holder understands their objectives and they want to they want to see the rights holder has made an effort to tailor that particular partnership to their needs. But then they also want to see that the rights holder understands why it's a good fit for them specifically and not just the rights holder's view on why they're a good fit for anyone. And I think that's a really key point. So as we discussed before, there is the absolute need to move away from superficial demographic data, really basic stuff. It kind of feels like the same phrasing or or point of view that we often have around simply logo slapping in sponsorship, that it's just not good enough anymore and we need to move away from it. So how does Nielsen do it? How do you get what brands and rights holders need in terms of data for fan links and things like females between 20 and 35 living in New South Wales, their intent to switch bank or buy a new car in the next 12 months? I quite like those comparisons, actually. Like Much like logos still play a role in sponsorship, but only if they're part of a broader strategy. I sort of feel the same way about demographic data. So that's still helpful, but only, again, as part of a broader and deeper understanding of the fans. So yeah, the other question around how do we get the data for fan links? So the really important thing, first of all, is the number of people we speak to. So there's a sample of 37,000 16 plus Australians. So a huge, robust sample size. And what that does is it ensures that you can drill down really deep into the data and still be able to use really robust sample sizes once you've drilled right down into that data set. So as an example, if you're looking to isolate the consumer behaviour of West Coast Fever fans in this in the Super Netball, you've still got a really robust sample size of those fans to be able to understand all those consumer behaviour and attitudinal data points. So that's important because what we have seen, and I remember a conversation with a rights holder where they were just preparing some reports for their partners and they'd been getting research from a different provider and they'd, they'd mentioned that they'd got this data point that was really attractive that they wanted to include in their partner report. But the issue was that there was only a sample size of four <laughs> that, they were, that they were working off and they decided to include that data anyway in the report because of the fact that it told a good story and, of course, didn't know anywhere the sample size. And that's, I guess that's back to the previous point that we talked about, Dan, where you just need to be so careful when you're relying on that data from the rights holder. What are you finding that brands want to focus on in terms of understanding their audiences when considering a sponsorship and, and really trying to get into detail and find the right properties that they actually want to sponsor? Brands looking to partner with a property are looking at three things probably specifically. So isolating specific fan segments. So as an example, fans of specific teams, then identifying the category and brand purchasing behavior of those fans. And then probably finally understanding in-depth consumer profiling of those fans. I love how you've categorized it into three areas, in-depth consumer profiling, sports interests and passion, and then category and brand purchasing behavior. So let's unpack those a little bit. Let's go into detail for the listeners. Let's start with sport and entertainment interests and passions, clearly an important one for sports rights holders. What data is important in this area? What are you looking to gather data on? This is really important for rights holders and for brands and, and the key to making all this data useful for sponsorship. So both want to be able to isolate and compare those specific fan segments based on their interests. So 
for example, you want to be able to look at avid fans of the, you know, the Penrith Panthers versus general fans of the Matildas versus people who are interested in the opera. Like they're the kind of comparisons you want to be able to make because because quite often we are working with brands to understand should they be with a sports property or should they be with an entertainment property? And then you can compare those different ones against each other as well in terms of how they their total reach, but also their indexing across these different yeah, behavioral and attitudinal data points. And I think touching on that opera as an example, that was an important point to make because you know it is not just about comparing sports fan segments. It's that wider range of entertainment options. And people aren't just interested in sports or opera or music. It's more of an and proposition, isn't it? That's exactly right. And that is, I guess that goes down to that deeper level of data in terms of, yeah, you're not just getting that surface level information, you're then understanding everything about those people. So you could look at those people who are interested in the opera and look at, you know, all the other things that they're interested in and fans of in terms of, you know, different sports, different teams, and then all their other behavior across um, different consumer categories. You also mentioned category and brand purchasing. This one feels like this is where the brands will want to focus, i.e. are people looking for a new mortgage, a new car, a holiday, et cetera. What sort of data do you collect in that area? I don't think I've mentioned it so far, but there's there's over a 1,000 questions in this FanLink survey, and a lot of them are focused on this part because, as you say, this is the area that, that brands really want to explore and understand, and they want to understand that category and brand purchasing behaviour of these different segments to be able to understand the relevant reach and the indexing of those fan segments. So I guess to, to make a bit more sense of that, as an example, you know, if I'm Toyota, I'm looking to look at the different fan segments and understand how many or what percentage and the indexing of fans who are looking to buy a car in the next six months or the next 12 months or the next two years. Is that car going to be a new car? Is it going to be an old car? What car do they currently own? What brands are they considering? What's their first choice consideration? And then you've got all sorts of attitudes as well around cars. So do they care about the appearance? Do they want to buy an Australian car? Is sex appeal important to them in a car? Would they seriously consider an electric car? About There's about 40 other even just specific attitudes around cars. I love how it's not just, are you interested in buying a new car? We're actually getting quite deep because that's where I feel the nuggets of information and the opportunities to activate sponsorships are going to be. And so the third one that you mentioned was in-depth consumer profiling. Talk us through that one. What, what sort of data are you looking for at that point? That one is really specifically, you know, brands looking to be able to profile the consumer segment to better execute their partnerships. So there's really deep understanding of media preferences as an example so this sort of data is used a lot by by big media agencies to do a lot of their media planning so there's lots and lots of information about preferred media channels and frequency of use and that sort of thing as well as what you talked about earlier in terms of you know people's other interests so so really helpful data in terms of you know executing uh, and leveraging the partnership so those three elements great rundown on those they're very important but how does Fanlinks then actually like bring it all together in a way that brands and rights holders can actually do something with it, make use of it? Because I'm curious if you simply just provide access to the data or is there some sort of analysis done to highlight key findings or, or trends? What's the data actually look like? How do you present it? 
There are different options for clients. I think the important thing um, to note is that all the options come with analyst support. So it's really important to us that clients that work with us around families are extracting the most value from the data. That's really important. So I guess the first option is clients can purchase a bank of analyst hours and then we'll go on to brief us on specific topics or problems that they're looking to, to solve. We then deliver them data and insights using that bank of hours. So they don't have direct access to the full data set, but we're doing that analysis for them and then presenting that back either in, you know, in PowerPoint reporting or, or data tables, whatever their preferred format is. And then the second sort of main option is the client actually purchases a subscription to that data. So the data is installed, Microsoft product called Clear Decisions installed on their computer. They're trained on that platform, which is a really you know, user-friendly platform, easy to use. My colleague often jokes, if he can use it, anyone can. And it's got, you obviously got 24-7 access to that data. And that's really important um, because you never know when you're, you know, say you're a rights holder using the data, you never know when you're going to get a door opening with a brand and you're going to need that data, you know, potentially for the next morning to be able to go in and tell a story. And I think, like I mentioned, you know, that option with the subscription, that they always comes with a bank of analyst hours as well, just to make sure that... Um, for when we get stuck? Yeah, yeah. Well, for when you get stuck in terms of, hey, you know, where's the best place to look for this kind of data or am I interpreting this data correctly? Or or maybe it's even, hey, I haven't actually got capacity in the next, you know, couple of days to do this, but I need it for a meeting. Can you guys do this for me? Like any any of those situations, that's where it's valuable. So let's say we have great fan data at our fingertips. Sure, we have an amazing profile of fans and intent, et cetera, but what can we actually do with it? How do we bring it to life in terms of what brands and rights holders can do with it? What does the amazing data allow us to achieve that we couldn't if we just had basic fan data? It's probably a few things. First of all, I'll start with the rights holders. So the way that they're using the data at the moment, the first way is identifying categories and specific brands to target. So rather than going out there and just trying to partner with anyone based on just selling yourself for who you are, you can actually look at the data and say, which categories and brands actually make the most sense to target with me? So where can I actually go and tell a really compelling story? And by doing that, not only are you going to have a better chance of getting that deal done, but you're actually saving yourself a lot of time because there's no point in you going and trying to partner with people if there's not a strong fit there. So you're doing a lot of that work up front to make sure that the conversations you're having are really relevant around a, a really strong potential partnership. So that's the first point around that category ID. Then the second point is once you have identified that that particular target and you've got something you know, set up, you can actually start to build really compelling pitch decks with a really clear value proposition. Uh, you know, that point that we keep making where it's sort of changing from telling a story about who you are to telling a story about why you are a good fit for that particular brand. And then I guess the third thing which you can do is you can actually start to, you know, build out, you know, models around what potential business returns would look like for partners if they partnered with you potentially versus if they partnered elsewhere. And that's, that's also obviously a really powerful story to tell. And then the flip side of that is the brands, I guess, and, and how they're using the data. And I think the first thing there is, you know, they're using it to compare all sponsorship prop, you know, opportunities in the market on a like-for-like -like basis. So without data like this, you are kind of relying on the data that, that rights holders are putting in proposals and 
that means that you're not comparing uh, those properties like for like. So you've got a data set that allows you to look at everything with the same lens. The second point is you can utilize how appropriate the sponsorship fit is with each segment based on their consumer behaviors and attitudes. And then the third point there is, you know, the use of the data to, like we talked about a little bit earlier, again, you know, to assist with partnership execution. So that point around understanding, you know, media preferences as, as an example. That all sounds amazing, being able to have great data and being able to use it well and having rights holders and brands aligned. But And you kind of mentioned or alluded to it a second ago, but what about the flip side, so to speak? Do you ever see or hear of situations where a brand is, they're talking to a rights holder and the brand has heaps of great data, maybe provided by you that they are talking to and, and, and trying to look for alignment about the types of people that they want to engage with. But the rights holder's own data is just so unsophisticated that they just can't actually align with the brand's data and, and, and tell a compelling story. Yes, we hear plenty of this. A lot of the time, this is actually when the clubs or the leagues are really keen to talk to us about Foundlinks because they've been having recent experiences that are just like the one that you've called out. And it's funny that you use the phrase, you know, tell their own story because that's actually the main problem. Rights holders have been used to telling a story about themselves, the same story over and over again, but to different brands. So the reality is brands are now getting used to some leading rights holders telling a different story. So that's a story about why the rights holder is a good fit for them specifically. So that's the difference in the story that's being told. And it's not about how many fans or how many participants they have. It's about how relevant those fans, participants are to the brand that they're talking to. Fan data has obviously gotten way more sophisticated in recent times. You made the great point earlier that there's probably never been a bigger discrepancy in terms of change and ability and access than over the last 10 years. But is there... Is there a holy grail or an evolution that you have your eye on that you see us striving for that will deliver even greater benefits than what we're talking about here? We've talked a lot about how far fan data has come in recent years in relation to sponsorship selection. I think what's really interesting is we're at the point now where we've just reached what we would say has been kind of on the horizon as the holy grail for fan data in relation to sponsorship measurement. And this is really exciting. So, Nielsen's rosy research framework has been helping sponsors measure the impact of sponsorship on brand equity. And that's been really popular and a real focus for brands, sponsors over the last you know, few years in particular. What's happened really over the journey of the last five years since the, you know, the Repucon business was acquired by Nielsen um, to form that sort of Nielsen sports division within the Nielsen business overall, What's happened is we've now built the capacity to measure the impact of sponsorship on sales, which no one else is doing it. It's actually allowing you to compare performance across your whole sponsorship portfolio on this, you know, what are these sponsorships doing in terms of driving sales? And further to that, it's allowing you to answer questions that haven't been answered before. So we know that in Australia and New Zealand, about 19% of marketing budget is spent on sponsorship. But traditionally, we haven't been able to line up the ROI on that 19% versus other marketing activity where ROI has been delivered through things like market mix models. But now we can do it all together and actually be able to answer the question, 
what is one dollar invested in sponsorship what does that return versus one dollar invested in any other marketing activity and that's really exciting and we're talking to lots of clients at the moment about scoping this out and getting this started for them because it's it is that evolution in sophistication that you've talked about FansLink sounds like an amazing product, loads of benefits, and people will be excited about some of the, the, the vision that you've created about how they can go about their work and be even better at it. So without too much of a cheesy Nielsen product plug, what advice would you have for anyone on the brand or the rights holder side struggling to understand where to start with fan or audience data? Pretty basically, I would say get in contact with us and let us take you through a demonstration of FanLinks specifically. And the reason I say that is every time you do it, you can see the light bulbs going on in people's heads. But they, you know, it's one thing to sort of talk about it and try and wrap your head around it when, you know, someone like myself is, is trying to explain it. But once you actually see the data and see how it can be used, you can see that people are running ahead you're thinking of all the different things that they're going to be able to do with that data. Um, so that's the moment that it becomes real. So that's what I would encourage you to do. Steve, such an interesting chat and super topical right now as we all try and be better on both sides of the fence. If people want to find out more about FansLink or maybe keep the conversation going, as you said, having a demo really helps the light bulbs go off. What can they do? Where can they go? Probably a couple of things. So, First one is you could just go to nielsensports.com on the website as a contact us button in the top right of the screen. Make sure you select Australia so that it does come through to us. Or if you want, you can contact me directly as well. And that's at steve.waitley, W-H-A-T-E-L-Y at nielsen.com, N-I-E-L-S-E-N. Steve Waitley, Director, Commercial and Consulting at Nielsen Sports. Thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your insights and advice around how to use fan data in selling and aligning sponsorships. That's been an absolute pleasure, Dan. Thanks for having me on. Great chat with Stephen on a topic that really does feel like the more you ignore accessing a highly detailed and deep understanding of your fans or target audience, the more you're going to fall behind. And I say that because as per the AFL example that Steve gave, more and more of your competitors are using fan data to their advantage. And as a result, that just puts you behind them in your ability to align your sponsorships with the right partners, irrespective of whether you are a rights holder or a brand. You can connect with Steve on LinkedIn. Just search for Steve Waitley, that's W-H-A-T-E-L-Y, or head to nielsen.com to learn more about fan links. If you want to connect with me, you can do so on LinkedIn. Just search for Daniel Oyston. That's O-Y-S-T-O-N. I'll give you a shout out. And if you want to connect with Jordan Rutner, Research Marketing Manager at Core Software, you can catch him on jordan.rutner at coresoftware.com or search for him on LinkedIn as well. That's Jordan, J-O-R-D-A-N, Rutner, R-U-T-N-E-R. That's a wrap for episode 98. Until next time, I'm Daniel Oyston. Thanks for listening to Inside Sponsorship listening to the show for more episodes and to subscribe to the show search for inside sponsorship on apple Podcasts, google Podcasts, or wherever it is you listen to your podcasts also for more free industry specific resources including blogs ebooks white papers and our insights newsletter head to coresoftware.com finally be sure to follow core software on twitter and linkedin